Scripture this morning is taken from Ezra chapter 4, the last two verses of that chapter, and the first two verses of chapter 5. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshad, the scribe and their associates, when they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease, then the work on the house of God, that is, in Jerusalem, stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah, Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God, the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Jesha, the son of Zodak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Last week in our study, that one's all me. Last week in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, we, uh, we saw that the returnees to Jerusalem succeeded in laying the foundation of the temple. And they did that despite an onslaught of opposition that they faced over and over again. And you may remember that last week we talked about how Ezra chapter 4 is, is kind of a, a non-sequential chapter. It's not a chapter that all the events are set in chronological order. It starts and ends with events during the reign of Darius. You can see that in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 5 and Ezra chapter 4 and verse 24. But in between those verses, it talks about events that occurred in the, the reigns of other kings that followed Darius. And the fact that the returnees dealt with nearly a century of opposition served as a reminder to us uh, that we need to be determined. We need fortitude. We need endurance when it comes to serving our Lord. But there's one thing I didn't mention last week in regards to that whole temple rebuilding process, and that's the fact that by the end of Ezra chapter 4, work on the temple had come to a standstill. If you look at Ezra chapter 4 verses 4 and 5, you read this. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And that's chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. Now, if you skip down to verse 24 of Ezra chapter 4, the story picks up with this. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of, king Dari of Darius, king of Persia. Now let's set that in some chronological context. The, the, the exiles were able to return, were allowed to return in the first year of King Darius, according to Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1. The first year of King, I'm sorry, I said King Darius, I meant King Cyrus. The exiles were allowed to return to Jerusalem in the first year of King Cyrus, Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1. That would have been in 538 B.C. They began construction on the temple's foundation 
in the second year of King Cyrus, according to uh, Ezra chapter, I think it's chapter 3 and verse 1, or chapter 3 and verse 8, in the second month, second year of King Cyrus, the second year of King Cyrus would actually be 536 B.C. And then we're told there at the end of Ezra chapter 4 that work on the temple stopped until the second year of King Darius. Now, Darius came into power as king in 522 B.C. So they go back in 538 B.C. They start construction on the temple in 536 B.C., but then are under a, a standstill of work until 520 B.C., the second year of King Darius. That's 16 years of no work on the temple. 16 years they did nothing on that temple. And I have to admit, I, I don't know exactly why the returnees didn't resume the work sooner. I don't know of a, a justifiable excuse or explanation for their failure to get back to work. All I know is that when construction resumed, they showed remarkable integrity. Integrity, that's, that's one of those uh, uh, words that gets thrown around so easily. Particularly in a work environment, in a corporate environment, we'll throw integrity around like it's just a, a, a hot word. Integrity. And that kind of latched on to this term simply because in any construction project, in any rebuilding effort, you have to be concerned about the integrity of the project, right? And here's the thing. I know I've got a lot, lot of engineers in this audience. And I am by no means an engineer. I, I do not have any sophistication in that field. But it's my understanding in the most general of terms that in engineering, you have this thing called structural integrity. We've, most of us have probably heard that terminology before. But I'm about to give you a preacher's version of what structure, structural integrity is, and you engineers can come correct me afterwards. Feel free I will put my AirPods in and you can tell me all about it. <laughs> Structural integrity, as far as I understand the term, it refers to a structure's ability to do what it was designed to do, even under extraordinary circumstances. So you have a building. What's a building supposed to do? A building's supposed to stand and bear weight. And that building has integrity as long as it's able to do that, even in extreme circumstances. A bridge has integrity as long as it's able to support its weight and the traffic that crosses it, even under the worst situations. A, a, a vessel, whether it be an airplane or a boat or a car, a vehicle of transport of any kind, has integrity as long as it's able to safely move its passengers under extraordinary circumstances, even under extraordinary circumstances. Buildings and infrastructure and vehicles are all designed, inspected, and tested to ensure that they have integrity so that they're able to serve their intended purpose under extraordinary circumstances. And guess what? The Bible indicates that you and I, as children of God, were designed to have integrity, and that integrity will be tested. 
There's a statement in Psalm chapter 15 and verse 2, that, using the New American Standard Version. It says, one who walks with integrity practices righteousness. Now, now you and I know that as children of God, that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to practice righteousness. Because anyone who doesn't practice, practice righteousness is, is practicing unrighteousness, right? And therefore sinning. So you, you get that. We're to practice righteousness. And Psalm chapter 15, verse 2 tells us, one who walks with integrity practices righteousness. In that psalm, integrity and righteousness are paired as if they are interlocked, interwoven. And then there's Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 9, whoever walks in integrity walks securely. Don't you want to walk secure, securely? That's why you're not supposed to text and walk at the same time. You ever seen those videos of people falling in fountains because they're too busy looking, staring at their phone screen to walk securely? Psalm chapter 7 and verse 8, David made the following request of God. He said, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. He invited God's investigation. He invited God's inspection of his life and said, look at my integrity. Do you remember the story of Job? In Job chapter 2, after Satan had already tested Job with some of the most challenging circumstances of life, in a conversation between the Lord and Satan, the Lord says, look at my servant Job. He holds fast his integrity. See, there is this expectation that you and I, as God's people, are going to walk in integrity. And in the aftermath of that 16-year construction hiatus, the returnees showed that they had integrity in three ways that we should seek to emulate. Let me show you what those were. First and foremost, the returnees showed integrity by accepting correction. Look at Ezra chapter 5 and look at the first two verses. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah, in Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Right there in that first verse of Ezra chapter 5, we learn that in order to motivate the returnees to get back to work on the temple, God sent the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Thanks to references in these two minor prophets' texts, we can conclude that the messages recorded in the book of Haggai were delivered between August and December of 520 B.C., and Zechariah's messages began in October of 520 B.C. and continued into February of 519 B.C. And what's interesting about these two prophets is that they approached the task of motivating the people very differently. Zechariah was an encourager. His messages tended to be positive and uplifting. As one commentator said, Zechariah tried to mend their broken spirits and lift up their drooping hearts in order to get them back to work. Just look at the message of Zechariah chapter 1, verse 15 and 17. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 15 through, through 17. The Lord speaking through Zechariah said, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. I, in verse 18, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy, 
My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Then in verse 17, my city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Isn't that beautiful? The message that Zechariah is communicating from the Lord is, hey, the Lord's on your side. The Lord's going to bring back his wonderful city of Jerusalem. The Lord's going to make it prosperous again, and the Lord's going to be with you again. It's all words of encouragement. He is, a, is building them up so that they'll be motivated to return to work. Haggai, on the other hand, has a different approach. He's more of what we might call an admonisher. His messages confronted the people's sin and took on the form of a reprimand. You can see this in the first chapter of Haggai. Look at verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while his, this house lies in ruins? He's referring to the temple. You skip down to verse 7. He then says, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. This is God speaking through Haggai for the record. That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Now let me ask you a question. Which of these two guys would you rather have come to motivate you on your job site? Would you rather hear from a Haggai who's telling you all the wrong things you've done, or do you want to hear from Zechariah who came and told you all the good things that are going to happen to you? Amazing how the Lord uses both of these guys and their two very different approaches to motivate his people to get back to work. And both styles worked. You look at Ezra chapter 5 and verse 2, here's what we're told. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them supporting them. In other words, they got the message. Haggai and Zechariah come on the scene and the people responded correctly. They got back to work. God's intent for Zechariah and Haggai was to motivate the people to get them back to work, and it worked. See, sometimes God's people need correction. I think that's why the Bible instructs us to restore our fellow brother or sister who is caught in any transgression in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. And, and, and it instructs us to bring back anyone from among our spiritual family who wanders from the truth. In James chapter 5 and verse 19. And Romans chapter 15 and verse 14 instructs us to admonish one another. All of those passages, all of those statements are calls for Christians to correct each other. Now, you get that. I don't really need to spend time today telling you that we need to correct one another. We understand that. But what you might need to hear today is that when you're corrected, you need to receive it correctly. See, I think that's the most important thing to notice about the involvement of Haggai and Zechariah here in the story of the rebuilding of the temple. Their corrective efforts were correctly received by the returnees. See, the returnees, they needed to be corrected. 
they had set for 16 years not doing the job that God had permitted them to return to Jerusalem to do. They needed correction. They needed Haggai and Zechariah. They needed someone to show them their faults. And instead of getting offended, instead of getting defensive, instead of pointing the finger at someone else, instead of deflecting and acting like nothing's their fault, the returnees got back to work. The lesson for us is that there are going to be times in life we need correction. Every one of us is going to need to be corrected at some point in time. Are you going to receive it as a child of God like these guys did? Are you going to receive it correctly? Think about Peter for a moment. Peter, the first gospel preacher, a shepherd in the church of Jesus Christ. And this guy, who was one of the big three apostles, this guy has to get corrected. This guy has to have Paul come over and tell him, you're a hypocrite. Galatians chapter 2, you can read all about it. If Peter, this shepherd, this preacher, this apostle, had to be corrected at some point in his career, who am I to think that I won't need to be corrected at some point in my lifetime? But more than that, Peter accepted the correction correctly. And if Peter, who was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit to communicate the Word of God, both in spoken and written word, if he could humbly receive that correction, then who am I not to do the same? If we are in people of integrity, then we must be people who willingly receive correction correctly, just like Zerubbabel, just like Jeshua, and just like the people who rebuilt the temple. Integrity depends on that. But there's something else I want you to notice about integrity here. Not only that it means you're going to receive correction correctly, but also, when you look at the returnees, they showed integrity by cooperating with authority. Look here at the text in verses 3 and 4 of Ezra chapter 5. They've gotten back to work. Haggai and Zechariah have come, and they've prophesied, and the people got back to work. Then in verse 3, At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bazanai, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? Let me explain what happens here. It's another form of opposition, but it's different. You know, back in Ezra chapter 4, opposition arose from the people of the land. It came from the residents that were in and around Jerusalem. It came from what we come to know as the Samaritans. But here, this isn't coming from locals. This is coming from a guy named Tatanai. And Tatanai is the governor of that province. That means he's the guy who's responsible for, to the Persian king for what happens in that part of the world. 
He has to give an answer. He has to respond. He has to take responsibility for anything that's going on in his, his part of the territory. It's coming from a government official. The other thing is, if you go back to Ezra chapter 4, you look at that opposition, it was motivated by disrespect. The people of the land, the residents of the area, when the, when the exiles returned, were offended, felt disrespected when they weren't allowed to help rebuild that temple. And so, out of their feelings of disrespect, they're going to get back at these returnees. And so they intentionally stir up strife. They intentionally do things that are going to cause that project to come to a stop. But this time, the opposition takes a different form. It takes a more legitimate form. It takes the form of a legal inquiry into the legitimacy of the project. What you need to know is that the first two years of Darius' reign as king were stormy ones. Because there were revolts going on all around his empire. He spent his first two years dealing with people revolting against him. So it was natural that his governor and the authorities in that region inspected such a new building activity as the Jews were doing. Because the building of any large structure, as one commentator pointed out, the building of any large structure without the approval of the king might reveal that the people building it were on the verge of re rebelling against their Persian masters. So in other words, Tatanai sees this project get started up. It hasn't been touched in 16 years. He sees this project underway, and he knows there's been revolts around the empire, and he knows if there's revolts in his territory, he's going to get in trouble. So he goes down to find out who gave them permission to build this structure. He's, in effect, asking for their building permit. His request is completely legitimate. And to show you its legitimacy, I want you to realize this back in Ezra chapter 4 when the opposition to the temple construction came up, they so affected the construction of the temple that they brought it to a standstill. This time, Tathanai didn't make them stop. He didn't ask them to stop construction. He just asked them to explain what's going on. Then he sent a letter to, to Darius, letting Darius know the answers they gave to his questions and asking Darius to check the records to make sure that what they're saying is true. But he never made them stop. Look at Ezra chapter 5 and verse 5. They did not stop them on the construction of the temple. They allowed, Tatanai allowed the work to continue while he waited to hear back from the king. That shows you his motivation wasn't wrong. That shows you he wasn't anti-building the temple. That shows you he wasn't the same type of opponent that they faced in the previous chapter. So that explains what's going on here. But what I think is the most important thing to notice about the investigation of Tatanai is that the returnees cooperated fully with him. 
They answered every question Tats and I posed to them. They were not withholding. They were not deceptive. They were not combative. They responded in a completely cooperative manner, which in turn demonstrated that they were subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, as 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13 calls on us to be. Now I know any time I appeal to a passage like 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 13 or Romans chapter 13 and verse 1 and start talking about our relationship to governing authorities, I make some of you mad. I know that some people don't like for preachers to talk about the relationship to the government, especially in times when you don't agree with all the policies of the government. But I want you to understand something. It doesn't matter who's in the White House or who owns Congress or what decisions the Supreme Court makes. I have the same message every time I get up here about our relationship to the government. You don't believe me? we got all the sermons on the website. Call up Pam. She'll get you to them. No, don't call Pam. She'll be mad at me. But here's what I want you to understand. You look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. Actually, I'll help you look at it. I forgot. I have it up here. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. I want you to notice something that's not in this text. This text is not qualified. Peter didn't say be subject to every human institution if it is operating according to God's will. He didn't say be subject to every human institution if you agree with that institution's ideologies or platform. He didn't say be subject to every human institution if that institution is operating according to a particular system of government. He didn't put any parameters on it. There are no ifs with this instruction. In other words, we are to be subject to every human institution under all circumstances as long as, and hear me on this because some of you have already shut your ears off and you're not listening, but this is really important, as long as such subjection does not cause us to be disobedient to the will of God, as was the case in Acts chapter 5 when Peter proclaimed, we must obey God rather than men. Our subjection to human institutions, to government, has no stipulations except that we obey God first and foremost. And Peter gave this unqualified instruction during a political climate that was not favorable to Christianity. Most scholars agree that 1 Peter was written while Peter was in Rome near the end of his life, sometime between A.D. 62 and 65, during the reign of one known as Emperor Nero. Nero is famous for initiating the first government-sponsored persecution of Christians. In A.D. 64, a fire devastated the city of Rome. Citizens of Rome accused Nero of having started the fire, and history supports their accusations, but to deflect blame from himself. Do you know what Nero did? He blamed it on Christians. He accused Christians of having started the fire, and then he began an intense persecution of them. And his persecution, according to tradition, eventually resulted in the execution of both Peter and Paul. So the letter of 1 Peter, with its instructions about subjection to the governing authorities, is written during the reign of Christianity's first major persecutor. 
So the original readers of Peter's letter would have been faced with the be subject to every human institution policy during a time of persecution, during a time when the guy who wrote it is martyred. And the fact that this instruction came during a time of persecution is a reminder to us that these instructions are applicable in all settings. Just as God shows no partiality when it comes to salvation, He shows no partiality when it comes to governing authorities. And He expects us to do the same. If we're people of integrity, then we must be people who cooperate with authority as long as that cooperation doesn't cause us to be disobedient to the Lord. Just like Zerubbabel, just like Jeshua, and just like the people who rebuilt the temple. Now I realize what I've just done. I've still got one more point to go, and most of you have already closed me off. But please stick with me. Because there's one more thing about integrity you do need to know. If you're mad at me for telling you to be subject to the government, you can come talk to me afterwards. I'll keep my AirPods out for that one. But please continue on with me for this third point. Notice that the returnees showed integrity by viewing themselves honestly. There's one last thing I want you to notice about these returnees, and it's born out of their response to Tatanai's questions. Tatanai asked them, who gave you a decree to build this house? Now look at their response in verse 11 and 12 of Ezra chapter 5. They said, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which is a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. In verses 13 through 16 that follow this, they will provide further response to Tatanai's question, focusing in particular on the political permission they received to rebuild the temple by Cyrus the Great. And it will be this part of their response that Tatanai uses in his correspondence with Darius to confirm their story. But what I think is the most important thing to notice about their response to Tatanai is the admission of their ancestors' sin. When they responded to Tatanai, they admitted their failings collectively as a people. In other words, they had an honest assessment of their history. There was no pretense here. There was no embellishment of the situation. There was no deflecting or excuse-making. They owned the fact that their ancestors angered God and their captivity was a consequence of that sin. The lesson for us is that integrity isn't just about doing what we know is right. It's also about admitting when we know we've done wrong. Friday afternoon, had a gentleman at my house repairing some furniture, some upholstery with a warranty that we had. He came out to repair that. In the process of repairing an ottoman, he put a gash in our floor. Uh, we have a, it's not hardwood, it's a laminate wood floor, but he put a gash in it. I didn't know that. But when he finished the ottoman, he called me to come look at it and, look, and, and he showed it to me. He's like, got it all done. I was like, great, good job. 
He's like, but I accidentally put a gash in your floor. I never saw it. He had to point it out to me. He said, if you'll give me permission, I do this for a living, I'll fix your floor. I said, sure. He stayed an extra 15, 30 minutes to fix the floor that he damaged. He could have just pulled, after finishing the ottoman, pulled it over the spot that he damaged and act like nothing happened. Walked out the door. I didn't have his name. I didn't have his contact information. Everything I did was through a company. And then they hired out the work. He could have walked out of my house having damaged my floor and never said a word. I would have never known. But he owned it. And I thanked him for that. I thanked him for the fact that he admitted he did it and that he then fixed it. That's integrity. I'll never meet that guy again, probably. I hope one day he'll tune into this sermon and go, hey, he's talking about me. I don't know if that'll ever happen. But I admire that guy because he had integrity. You and I are supposed to have the same. And I want you to notice there's an expectation in Scripture that we will. You've read this verse before. Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a, the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. An off-overlooked implication of this passage is that Jesus knows that you and I have the ability to self-assess. Jesus knows that you know when you've got a speck in your eye. Jesus knows that you know when you're in the wrong. Jesus knows that you know when you've sinned. And what Jesus is calling for when he said, first take the log out of your own eye, is for you and for I to be willing to admit our wrongs before we start pointing the finger at the wrongs of others. Implicit within this passage is the awareness that you and I are capable of finding logs in our own eyes and capable of removing them. There is an expectation that we can honestly assess ourselves and admit that we're wrong. And then, of course, there's 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10, through 10, which says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. The implication of this passage is that unless you're willing to admit your sin, then you cannot be forgiven. If you're unwilling to admit that you're a sinner, then guess what? You can't be forgiven because you know what? Only sinners need salvation. Here's the thing. When we think about forgiveness of sins, we think about two things in general. Number one, we think about baptism, and rightfully so. Because unless you're washed by the blood of Jesus in the waters of baptism, your sins can't be forgiven. And the other thing we think of is repentance, and rightfully so, because unless you're willing to turn away from your sins, you can't be forgiven. But we don't always talk about confession of sins. Even in the steps of salvation, when we talk about confession, we're talking about confession of Jesus' identity, not confession of sins. But right here, if we confess our sins. That's a conditional statement. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is an expectation of our ability and willingness to admit our guilt, to admit our wrong, to admit our sins in order to receive forgiveness. And the point is, if we are people of integrity, then we must be people who admit our failings. 
just like Zerubbabel, just like Jeshua, and just like the people who rebuilt the temple. Before I wrap up this lesson, I I want you to know the rest of the story with the temple rebuilding. The remainder of Ezra 5 shares Tatanai's official correspondence to King Darius, requesting for an investigation into the legality of the rebuilding effort. A search was conducted in the royal records, and the next thing you know, Darius responds to Tatanai, but it's over in Ezra chapter 6 and verse 7. And his response starts with this, Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. The king's orders were heeded, and if you go down to Ezra chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, we're told that the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So the temple got completed. It got completed because of their integrity. You know how I know that? Well, back in Ezra chapter 5 and verse 5, in the midst of Tatanai's inquiry, we're told that the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. In other words, God was with his people and he granted them success throughout the remainder of this rebuilding project. And I think it has everything to do with their integrity because, because Solomon the original temple builder, identified God in Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 7 as a shield to those who walk in integrity. And then in that same chapter, just a few verses later, declared that the upright will inhabit the land. Those with integrity will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. And I think the point is this. I think God's word summons us to a life of integrity. God's word presents the case that you and I are to be people of integrity. And God's word tells of the fruit that comes from integrity and shows us the truthfulness, the promise kept of that fruit through the lives of people like those who rebuilt this temple. The question today is this. Have you been living with integrity? Because every construction project requires integrity. No matter what you're building right now, it can't stand without some degree of integrity. If today you need to choose to become a child of God by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is his risen son, repenting of your sins, and being immersed in water for those sins to be forgiven. And that opportunity is available. If you're here today and you look at yourself and you haven't been a person of integrity and you need to change or you need our assistance, our prayers, our help, then that opportunity is available. Right now we invite you, invite you to choose to be a person of integrity while together we stand and sing. Have you walked?